Hardly knowing how he dared, the poor startled monk staggered to his feet and, leading his horse, walked nervously forward towards it. He reached out and touched it. He was so startled and no alarms went off that he jumped back. He touched it again, more firmly this time. He let his hand drop slowly to the handle. Again, no alarms. He waited to be sure, and then he turned it very, very gently. He felt a mechanism release. He held his breath. Nothing. He drew the door towards him, and it came easily. He looked inside, but the interior was so dim in contrast with the desert sun outside that he could see nothing. At last, almost dead with wonder, he entered, pulling the horse in after him. A few minutes later, a figure that had been sitting out of sight around the next outcrop of rock finished rubbing dust on his face, stood up, stretched his limbs, and made his way back towards the door, patting his clothes as he did so. Chapter 6 In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure-dome decree. The reader clearly belonged to the school of thought which holds that a sense of the seriousness or greatness of a poem is best imparted by reading it in a silly voice. He soared and swooped at the words until they seemed to duck and run for cover. Where Alf the sacred river ran, through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. Richard relaxed back into his seat. The words were very, very familiar to him, as they could not help but be to any English graduate of St. Seds College, and they settled easily into his mind. The association of the college with Coleridge was taken very seriously indeed, despite the man's well-known predilection for certain recreational pharmaceuticals, under the influence of which this, his greatest work, was composed in a dream. The entire manuscript was lodged in the safekeeping of the college library, and it was from this itself, on the regular occasion of the Coleridge dinner, that the poem was read. So twice five miles of fertile ground, with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. Richard wondered how long it took. He glanced sideways at his former director of studies and was disturbed by the sturdy purposefulness of his reading posture. The sing-song voice irritated him at first, but after a while it began to lull him instead, and he watched a rivulet of wax seeping over the edge of a candle that was burning low now and throwing a guttering light over the carnage of dinner. But, oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover! A savage place as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath the waning moon was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. The small quantities of claret that he had allowed himself during the course of the meal seeped warmly through his veins, and soon his own mind began to wander, and provoked by Ridge's question earlier in the meal, he wondered what had lately become of his former, was friend the word? He seemed more like a succession of extraordinary events than a person. The idea of him actually having friends as such seemed not so much unlikely, more a sort of mismatching of concepts, like the idea of the Suez crisis popping out for a bun. Svad Chaley, popularly known as Dirk, though again popular was hardly right, notorious, certainly sought after, endlessly speculated about, those two were true, but popular? Only in the sense that a serious accident on the motorway might be popular. Everyone slows down to have a good look, but no one will get too close to the flames. Infamous was more like it. Svlad Jaley, infamously known as Dirk. He was rounder than the average undergraduate and wore more hats. That is to say, there was just the one hat which he habitually wore, but he wore it with a passion that was rare in one so young. The hat was dark red and round, with a very flat brim, and it appeared to move as if balanced on gimbals, which ensured its perfect horizontality at all times, however its owner moved his head. As a hat, it was a remarkable rather than entirely successful piece of personal decoration. It would make an elegant adornment, stylish, shapely, and flattering, if the wearer were a small bedside lamp, but not otherwise. People gravitated around him, drawn in by the stories he denied about himself, but what the source of these stories might be, if not his own denials, was never entirely clear. The tales had to do with the psychic powers that he had supposedly inherited from his mother's side of the family, who, he claimed, had lived at the smarter end of Transylvania. That is to say, he didn't make any such claim at all, and said it was the most absurd nonsense. 
He strenuously denied that there were bats of any kind at all in his family and threatened to sue anybody who put about such malicious fabrications. But he affected, nevertheless, to wear a large and flappy leather coat and had one of those machines in his room which are supposed to help cure bad backs if you hang upside down from them. He would allow people to discover him hanging from this machine at all kinds of odd hours of the day and more particularly of the night expressly so that he could vigorously deny that it had any significance whatsoever. By means of an ingenious series of strategically deployed denials of the most exciting and exotic things, he was able to create the myth that he was a psychic, mystic, telepathic, fey, clairvoyant, psychosassic vampire bat. What did psychosassic mean? It was his own word, and he vigorously denied that it meant anything at all. From this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breeding, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted. Dirk had also been perpetually broke. This would change. It was his roommate who started it, a credulous fellow called Manda, who, if the truth were known, had probably been specially selected by Dirk for his credulity. Steve Mander noticed that if ever Dirk went to bed drunk, he would talk in his sleep. Not only that, but the sort of things he would say in his sleep would be things like, The opening up of trade routes to the mumble-mumble-burble-burble was the turning point for the growth of empire in the snore-futal mumble. Discuss. Like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. The first time this happened, Steve Mander sat bolt upright in bed. This was shortly before prelim exams in the second year, and what Dirk had just said, or judiciously mumbled, sounded remarkably like a very likely question in the economic history paper. Manda quietly got up, crossed over to Dirk's bed, and listened very hard, but other than a few completely disconnected mumblings about Schleswig-Holstein and the Franco-Prussian War, the latter being largely directed by Dirk into his pillow, he learnt nothing more. News, however, spread quietly, discreetly, and like wildfire. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. For the next month, Dirk found himself being constantly wined and dined, in the hope that he would sleep very soundly that night and dream-speak a few more exam questions. Remarkably, it seemed that the better he was fed and the finer the vintage of the wine he was given to drink, the less he would tend to sleep facing directly into his pillow. His scheme, therefore, was to exploit his alleged gifts without ever actually claiming to have them. In fact, he would react to stories about his supposed powers with open incredulity, even hostility. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. Dirk was also, he denied, a clairaudient. He would sometimes hum tunes in his sleep that two weeks later would turn out to be a hit for someone. Not too difficult to arrange, really. In fact, he'd always done the bare minimum of research necessary to support these myths. He was lazy, and essentially what he did was allow people's enthusiastic credulity to do the work for him. The laziness was essential. If his supposed feats of the paranormal had been detailed and accurate, then people might have been suspicious and looked for other explanations. On the other hand, the more vague and ambiguous his predictions, the more other people's own wishful thinking would close the credibility gap. Dirk never made much out of it, at least he appeared not to. In fact, the benefit to himself as a student of being continually wined and dined at other people's expense was more considerable than anyone would expect unless they sat down and worked out the figures. And of course, he never claimed, in fact he actively denied, that any of it was even remotely true. He was therefore well placed to execute a very nice and tasty little scam come the time of finals. The shadow of the Dome of Pleasure floated midway on the waves. Where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves? It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. Good heavens! Reg suddenly seemed to awake with a start from the light doze into which he had gently slipped under the influence of the wine and the reading, and glanced about himself with blank surprise, but nothing had changed. Coleridge's words sang through a warm and contented silence that had settled on the great hall.
After another quick frown, Reg settled back into another doze, but this time a slightly more attentive one. Her damsel with a dulcimer, in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Dirk allowed himself to be persuaded to make, under hypnosis, a firm prediction about what questions would be set for examination that summer. He himself first planted the idea by explaining exactly the sort of thing that he would never, under any circumstances, be prepared to do, though in many ways he would like to, just to have the chance to disprove his alleged and strongly disavowed abilities. And it was on these grounds, carefully prepared, that he eventually agreed, only because it would once and for all scotch the whole silly, immensely, tediously silly business. He would make his predictions by means of automatic writing under proper supervision, and they would then be sealed in an envelope and deposited at the bank until after the exams. Then they would be opened to see how accurate they had been after the exams. He was, not surprisingly, offered some pretty hefty bribes from a pretty hefty number of people to let them see the predictions he had written down, but he was absolutely shocked by the idea. That, he said, would be dishonest. Could I revive within me her symphony and song? To such a deep delight would win me, that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice. Then, a short time later, Dirk allowed himself to be seen around town wearing something of a vexed and solemn expression. At first he waved aside inquirers as to what it was that was bothering him, but eventually he let slip that his mother was going to have to undergo some extremely expensive uh, dental work, which, for reasons that he refused to discuss, would have to be done privately, uh, only there wasn't enough money. From here, the path downward to accepting donations for his mother's supposed medical expenses in return for quick glances at his written exam predictions proved to be sufficiently steep and well-oiled for him to be able to slip down it with a minimum of fuss. Then it further transpired that the only dentist who could perform this mysterious dental operation was an East European surgeon now living in Malibu, and it was in consequence necessary to increase the level of donations rather sharply. He still denied, of course, that his abilities were all that they were cracked up to be. In fact, he denied that they existed at all, and insisted that he would never have embarked on the exercise at all if it wasn't to disprove the whole thing, and also, since other people seemed at their own risk to have a faith in his abilities that he himself did not, he was happy to indulge them to the extent of letting them pay for his sainted mother's operation. He could only emerge well from this situation, or so he thought. And all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. The exam papers Dirk produced under hypnosis by means of automatic writing. He had, in fact, pieced together simply by doing the same minimum research that any student taking exams would do, studying previous exam papers and seeing what, if any patterns emerged, and making intelligent guesses about what might come up. He was pretty sure of getting, as anyone would be, a strike rate that was sufficiently high to satisfy the credulous, and sufficiently low for the whole exercise to look perfectly innocent, as indeed it was. What completely blew him out of the water, and caused a furore which ended with him being driven out of Cambridge in the back of a black Maria, was the fact that all the exam papers he sold turned out to be the same as the papers that were actually set, exactly word for word to the very comma. Wave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. And that, apart from a flurry of sensational newspaper reports which exposed him as a fraud, then trumpeted him as the real thing, so that they could have another round of exposing him as a fraud again, and then trumpeting him as the real thing again, until they got bored and found a nice juicy snooker player to harass instead, was that. In the years since then, Richard had run to Dirk from time to time, and had usually been greeted by that kind of guarded half-smile that wants to know if you think it owes you money before it blossoms into one that hopes you will lend it some. Dirk's regular name changes suggested to Richard that he wasn't alone in being treated like this. He felt a tug of sadness that someone who had seemed so shiningly alive within the small confines of a university community should have seemed to fade so much in the light of common day and he wondered at Reg's asking after him like that, suddenly and out of the blue, in what seemed altogether too airy and casual a manner. He glanced around him again at his lightly snoring neighbour, Reg, at little Sarah, wrapped in silent attention. 
at the deep halls swathed in darkly glimmering light, at the portraits of old prime ministers and poets hung high in the darkness with just the odd glint of candlelight gleaming off their teeth, at the director of English studies standing reading in his poetry-reading voice, at the book of Kublai Khan that the director of English studies held in his hand, and finally, surreptitiously, at his watch. He settled back again. The voice continued, reading the second and altogether stranger part of the poem. Chapter 7 This was the evening of the last day of Gordon Way's life, and he was wondering if the rain would hold off for the weekend. The forecast had said changeable, a misty night tonight followed by bright but chilly days on Friday and Saturday, with maybe a few scattered showers towards the end of Sunday, when everyone would be heading back into town. Everyone, that is, other than Gordon Way. The weather forecast hadn't mentioned that, of course. That wasn't the job of the weather forecast. But then his horoscope had been pretty misleading as well. It had mentioned an unusual amount of planetary activity in his sign, and it urged him to differentiate between what he thought he wanted and what he actually needed, and suggested that he should tackle emotional or work problems with determination and complete honesty, but had inexplicably failed to mention that he would be dead before the day was out. He turned off the motorway near Cambridge and stopped at a small filling station for some petrol where he sat for a moment, finishing off a call on his car phone. OK, look, I'll call you tomorrow, he said, or, or maybe later tonight. Uh, or call me. I should be at the cottage in half an hour. Yes, I know how important the project is to you, all right? I know how important it is, full stop. You want it? I want it. Of course I do. I'm not saying we won't continue to support it. I'm just saying it's expensive and we should look at the whole thing with a, a determination and complete honesty. Look, why don't you come out to the cottage and we can talk about it? OK, yeah, yes, I know. I, yeah, I understand. Well. Think about it, Kate. Talk to you later. Bye. He hung up and continued to sit in his car for a moment. It was a large car. It was a large silver-grey Mercedes, of the sort that they use in advertisements, and not just advertisements for Mercedes. Gordon Way, brother of Susan, employer of Richard Macduff, was a rich man, and the founder and owner of WayForward Technologies, too. WayForward Technologies itself had, of course, gone bust, for the usual reason, taking his entire first fortune with it. Luckily, he had managed to make another one. The usual reason was that he had been in the business of computer hardware when every 12-year-old in the country had suddenly got bored with boxes that went bing. His second fortune had been made in software instead. As a result of two major pieces of software, one of which was Anthem, the other more profitable one had never seen the light of day, WayForward Technologies too was the only British software company that could be mentioned in the same sentence as such major US companies as Microsoft or Lotus. The sentence would probably run along the lines of WayForward Technologies 2, unlike such major US companies as Microsoft or Lotus, but it was a start. WayForward was in there, and he owned it. He pushed a tape into the slot on the stereo console. It accepted it with a soft and decorous click, and a moment or two later, Ravel's Bolero floated out of eight perfectly matched speakers with fine-meshed matte black grills. The stereo was so smooth and spacious you could almost sense the whole ice rink. He tapped his fingers lightly on the padded rim of the steering wheel. He gazed at the dashboard. Tasteful, illuminated figures and tiny, immaculate lights gazed dimly back at him. After a while, he suddenly realized this was a self-service station, and he got out to fill the tank. This took a minute or two. He stood gripping the filler nozzle, stamping his feet in the cold night air, then walked over to the small, grubby kiosk, paid for the petrol, remembered to buy a couple of local maps, and then stood chatting enthusiastically to the cashier for a few minutes about the directions the computer industry was likely to take in the following year, suggesting that parallel processing was going to be the key to really intuitive productivity software, but also strongly doubting whether artificial intelligence research per se, particularly artificial intelligence research based on the prologue language, was really going to produce any seriously commercial viable products in the foreseeable future, at least as far as the office desktop environment was concerned. A topic that fascinated the cashier, not at all. The man just liked to talk he would later tell the police. Man, I could have walked away to the toilet for ten minutes and he would have told it all to the till. If I'd been fifty minutes, the till would have walked away too. Yeah, I'm sure that's him, he would add when shown a picture of Gordon Way. I only wasn't sure at first because in this picture he's got his mouth closed. And you're absolutely certain you didn't see anything suspicious, the policeman insisted. Nothing that struck you as odd in any way at all. No, like I said, it was just an ordinary customer on an ordinary night, just like any other night. The policeman stared at him blankly. Just for the sake of argument, he went on to say, if I were suddenly to do this, 
He made himself go cross-eyed, stuck his tongue out of the corner of his mouth, and danced up and down, twisting his fingers in his ears. Would anything strike you about that? Well, er, uh, yeah, said the cashier, backing away nervously. I think you've gone stark raving mad. Good, said the policeman, putting his notebook away. It's just that different people sometimes have a different idea of what odd means, you see, sir. If last night was an ordinary night, just like any other night, then I am a pimple on the bottom of the Marquis of Queensbury's aunt. We should be requiring a statement later, sir. Thank you for your time. That was all yet to come. Tonight, Gordon pushed the maps in his pocket and strolled back towards his car. Standing under the lights in the mist, it had gathered a finely beaded coat of matte moisture on it and looked like, well, it looked like an extremely expensive Mercedes-Benz. Gordon caught himself just for a millisecond wishing that he had something like that, but he was now quite adept at fending off that particular line of thought, which only led off in circles and left him feeling depressed and confused. He patted it in a proprietorial manner, then, walking around it, noticed that the boot wasn't closed properly and pushed it shut. It closed with a good, healthy clunk. Well, that made it all worthwhile, didn't it? Good, healthy clunk like that. Old-fashioned values of quality and workmanship. Thought of a dozen things he had to talk to Susan about, and climbed back into the car, pushing the auto-dial code on his phone, as soon as the car was prowling back onto the road. So if you'd like to leave a message, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Maybe. Beep. Oh, Susan, hi, it's Gordon, he said, cradling the phone awkwardly on his shoulder. Uh, just on my way to the cottage. It's uh, Thursday night and it's uh, 8.47, bit misty on the roads. Uh, listen, I have those people from the States coming over this weekend to thrash out the distribution on Anthem version 2, handling the promotion, all that kind of stuff. And, and look, you know I don't like to ask you this sort of thing, but you know I always do anyway, so here it is. I just need to know that Richard is on the case. I mean, really on the case. I can ask him and he says, oh, sure, it's fine. But half the time, shit, that lorry had bright lights. None of these bastard lorry drivers ever dips them properly. It's a wonder I don't end up dead in a ditch. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Leaving your famous last words on somebody's answering machine. There's no reason why these lorries shouldn't have automatic light-activated dipper switches. Look, can you make a note for me to tell Susan, and not you, of course, uh, Secretary Susan at the office, uh, to tell her to send a letter from me to that fellow at the Department of the Environment saying we can provide the technology if he can provide the legislation. It's for the public good, and anyway, he owes me a favour. Plus, what's the good in having a CBE if you can't kick it at last? You can tell I've been talking to Americans all week. That reminds me, God, I hope I remember to pack the shotguns. What is it with these Americans that they're always so mad to shoot my rabbits? I bought them some maps in the hope that I can persuade them to go on long, healthy walks and take their minds off shooting rabbits. I really feel quite sorry for the creatures. I think I should put up one of the signs on my lawn when the Americans are coming, you know, like they have in Beverly Hills, saying armed response. Make a note to Susan, would you please, to get an armed response sign made up with a sharp spike on the bottom at the right height for rabbits to see. That's Secretary Susan at the office, not you, of course. Now, where was I? Oh, yes, Richard and Anthem too. Susan, that thing has got to be in beta testing in two weeks. He tells me it's fine, but every time I see him, he's got a picture of a sofa spinning on his computer screen. He says it's an important concept, but all I see is furniture. People who want their company accounts to sing to them do not want to buy a revolving sofa. Nor do I think he should be turning the erosion patterns of the Himalayas into a flute quintet at this time. And as for what Kate's up to, Susan, well, I can't hide the fact that I get anxious at the salaries and computer time it's eating up. Important long-term research and development it might be, but there's also the possibility, only a possibility, I'm saying, but nevertheless a possibility which I think we owe it to ourselves fully to evaluate and explore, which is that it's a lemon. That's odd, there's a noise coming from the boot. I thought I'd just closed it properly. Anyway, the main thing's Richard, and the point is that there's only one person who's really in a position to know if he's getting the important work done, or if he's just dreaming, and that one person is, I'm afraid, Susan. That's you. I mean, of course, not Secretary Susan at the office. So, can you, I don't like to ask you this, I really don't, can you really get on his case? Make him see how important it is. Just make sure he realises that WayForward Technologies is meant to be an expanding commercial business, not an adventure playground for crunchheads. That's the problem with Crunchheads. They have one great idea that actually works, and then they expect you to carry on funding them for years while they sit and calculate the topographies of their navels. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop and close that boot properly. Won't be a moment. He put the telephone down on the seat beside him, pulled over onto the grass verge, and got out. As he went to the boot, it opened. A figure rose out of it, shot him through the chest with both barrels of a shotgun, and then went about its business. Gordon Way's astonishment at being suddenly shot dead was nothing to his astonishment at what happened next. Chapter 8 Come in, dear fellow, come in. The door to Reg's set of rooms in college was up a winding set of wooden stairs in the corner of Second Court, and was not well lit. Or rather, it was perfectly well lit when the light was working, but the light was not working, so the door was not well lit, and was furthermore locked. Reg was having difficulty in finding the key from a collection which looked like something that a fit ninja warrior would hurl through the trunk of a tree. Rooms in the older parts of the college have double doors, like airlocks, and like airlocks they are fiddly to open. 
The outer door is a sturdy slab of grey-painted oak with no features other than a rather narrow slit for letters and a Yale lock, to which suddenly Reg at last found a key. He unlocked it and pulled it open. Behind it lay an ordinary white-panelled door with an ordinary brass doorknob. Come in, come in, repeated Reg, opening this and fumbling for the light switch. For a moment, only the dying embers of a fire in the stone grate threw ghostly red shadows dancing around the room, but then electric light flooded it and extinguished the magic. Reg hesitated on the threshold for a moment, oddly tense, as if wishing to be sure of something before he entered, then bustled in with at least the appearance of cheeriness. It was a large panelled room, which a collection of gently shabby furniture contrived to fill quite comfortably. Against the far wall stood a large and battered old mahogany table with fat, ugly legs, which was laden with books, files, folders, and teetering piles of papers. Standing in its own space on the desk, Richard was amused to note, was actually a battered old abacus. There was a small Regency writing desk standing nearby, which might have been quite valuable if it had not been knocked about so much. Also a couple of elegant Georgian chairs, a portentous Victorian bookcase, and so on. It was, in short, a Don's room. It had a Don's framed maps and prints on the walls, a threadbare and faded Don's carpet on the floor, and it looked as if little had changed in it for decades, which was probably the case because a Don lived in it. Two doors led out from either end of the opposite wall, and Richard knew from previous visits that one led to a study, which looked much like a smaller and more intense version of this room, larger clumps of books, taller piles of paper in more imminent danger of actually falling, furniture which, however old and valuable, was heavily marked with myriad rings of hot tea or coffee cups, on many of which the original cups themselves were probably still standing. The other door led to a small and rather basically equipped kitchen, and a twisty internal staircase, at the top of which lay the professor's bedroom and bathroom. Uh, try and make yourself comfortable on the sofa, invited Reg, fussing around hospitably. I don't know if you'll manage it. It always feels to me as if it's been stuffed with cabbage leaves and cutlery. He peered at Richard seriously. Do you have a good sofa? he inquired. Well, yes, Richard laughed. He was cheered by the silliness of the question. Oh, said Reg solemnly. Well, I wish you'd tell me where you got it. I have endless trouble with them, quite endless. Never found a comfortable one in my life. How do you find yours? He encountered, with a slight air of surprise, a small silver tray he had left out with a decanter of port and three glasses. Well, it's odd you should ask that, said Richard. I've never sat on it. Very wise, insisted Reg earnestly. Very, very wise. He went through a palaver similar to his previous one with his coat and hat. And not that I wouldn't like to, said Richard, it's just that it's stuck halfway up a long flight of stairs which leads up into my flat. As far as I can make it out, the delivery men got it part way up the stairs, got it stuck, turned it around any way they could, couldn't get it any further, and then found, curiously enough, that they couldn't get it back down again. Now that should be impossible. Odd, agreed Reg. I've certainly never come across any irreversible mathematics involving sofas. Could be a new field. Have you spoken to any spatial geometricians? I did better than that, said Richard. I called in a neighbour's kid who used to be able to solve Rubik's Cube in 17 seconds. He sat on a step and stared at it for over an hour before pronouncing it irrevocably stuck. Admittedly, he's a few years older now and has found out about girls, but it's got me puzzled. Carry on talking, my dear fellow, said Reg. I'm most interested. But let me know first if there's anything I can get you. Port, perhaps, or brandy? The port, I think, is the better bet, laid down by the college in 1934. One of the finest vintages, I think, you'll find. And on the other hand, I don't actually have any brandy. Um, or coffee, some more wine, perhaps. There's an excellent Margot. I've been looking for an excuse to open. Now, though, it should, of course, be allowed to stand open for an hour or two, which is not to say that I couldn't. Uh, no, he said hurriedly. Probably best not to go for the Margot tonight. Tea is what I'd really like, said Richard, um, if you have some. Reg raised his eyebrows. Are you sure? Uh, I have to drive home. Uh, indeed. Then I shall be a moment or two in the kitchen. Please carry on. I shall still be able to hear you. Continue to tell me of your sofa, and do feel free in the meantime to sit on mine. Has it been stuck there for long? Only about three weeks, said Richard, sitting down. I could just saw it up and throw it away, but I can't believe there isn't a logical answer. It's also made me think. It would be really useful to know before you buy a piece of furniture whether it's actually going to fit up the stairs or around the corner. So I've modelled the problem in three dimensions on my computer. Um, so far, it just says no way. It says what? Called Reg, over the noise of filling the kettle. That it can't be done. I told it to compute the moves necessary to get the sofa out, and it just said there aren't any. I said what? And it said there aren't any. I then asked it, and this is the really mysterious thing, to compute the moves necessary to get the sofa into its present position in the first place and it said that it couldn't have got there, not without fundamental restructuring of the walls. So either there's something wrong with the fundamental structure of the matter in my walls, or, he added with a sigh, there's something wrong with the program. Uh, which would you guess? Are you married? called Reg. 
What? Oh, I see what you mean. A sofa stuck on the stairs for a month. Well, no, not married as such, but yes, there is a specific girl that I'm not married to. What's she like? What does she do? Well, she's a professional cellist. I have to admit that the sofa has been a bit of a talking point. In fact, she's moved back to her own flat until I get it sorted out. She, well, he was suddenly sad, and he stood up and wandered round the room in a desultory sort of way, and ended up in front of the dying fire. He poked at it a little bit, and threw on a couple of extra logs to try and ward off the chill of the room. She's Gordon's sister, in fact, he added at last, but they're very different. I'm not sure she really approves of computers very much, and she doesn't much like his attitude to money. Don't think I entirely blame her, actually, and she doesn't know the half of it. Which is the half she doesn't know? Richard sighed. Well, he said, it's to do with the project which first made the software incarnation of the company profitable. It was called Reason, and in its own way it was sensational. Oh, what was it? Well, it was kind of back-to-front programme. It's funny how many of the best ideas are just an old idea back-to-front. You see, there have already been several programmes written that help you to arrive at decisions by properly ordering and analysing all the relevant facts, so that they then point naturally towards the right decision. The drawback with these is that the decision which all the properly ordered and analysed facts point to is not necessarily the one you want. Yes, said Reg's voice from the kitchen. Well, Gordon's great insight was to design a programme which allowed you to specify in advance what decision you wished it to reach, and only then to give it all the facts. The programme's task which he was able to accomplish with consummate ease, was simply to construct a plausible series of logical-sounding steps to connect the premises with the conclusion. And I have to say that it worked brilliantly. Gordon was able to buy himself a Porsche almost immediately, despite being completely broken a hopeless driver. Even his bank manager was unable to find fault with his reasoning, even when Gordon wrote it off three weeks later. Heavens, said Reg, and did the programme sell very well? No, we never sold a single copy. You astonish me. Sounds like a real winner to me. It was, said Richard hesitantly, the entire project was bought up lock, stock and barrel by the Pentagon. The deal put way forward on a very sound financial foundation. Its moral foundation, on the other hand, is not something I would want to trust my weight to. I've recently been analysing a lot of the arguments put forward in favour of the Star Wars project, and uh, if you know what you're looking for, the pattern of the algorithms is very clear. So much so, in fact, that looking at Pentagon policies over the last couple of years, I think I can be fairly sure that the US Navy is using version 2.0 of the program, while the Air Force, for some reason, has only got the beta test version of 1.5. Odd that. Do you have a copy? said Reg. Certainly not, said Richard. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Anyway, when the Pentagon bought everything, they bought everything. Every scrap of code, every disk, every notebook. I was glad to see the back of it. If indeed we have, I just busy myself with my own projects. He poked at the fire again and wondered what he was doing here when he had so much work on. Gordon was on at him continually about getting the new super version of Anthem ready for taking advantage of the Macintosh 2, and he was well behind with it. And as for the proposed module for converting incoming Dow Jones stock market information into MIDI data in real time, he had only meant that as a joke, but Gordon, of course, had flipped over the idea and insisted on its being implemented. That too was meant to be ready, but wasn't. He suddenly knew exactly why it was that he was here. Well, it had been a pleasant evening, even if you couldn't see why Reg had been quite so keen to see him. He picked up a couple of books from the table. The table obviously doubled as a dining table, because, although the piles looked as if they had been there for weeks, the absence of dust immediately around them showed that they had been moved recently. Maybe, he thought, the need for amiable chit-chat with somebody different can become as urgent as any other need when you live in a community as enclosed as a Cambridge college was even nowadays. He was a likeable old fellow, but it was clear from dinner that many of his colleagues found his eccentricities formed a rather rich, sustained diet, particularly when they had so many of their own to contend with. thought about Susan nagged him, but he was used to that. He flipped through the two books he had picked up. One of them, an elderly one, was an account of the hauntings of Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in England. Its spine was getting raggedy, and the photographic plates were so grey and blurry as to be virtually indistinguishable. A picture he thought must be a very lucky, or faked, shot of a ghostly apparition turned out, when he examined the caption, to be a portrait of the author. The other book was more recent, and by an odd coincidence, was a guide to the Greek islands. He thumbed through it idly, and a piece of paper fell out. Earl Grey or Lapsang Souchong? called out Reg. Or Darjeeling or PG Tips? It's all tea bags anyway, I'm afraid, and none of them very fresh. Darjeeling will do fine, replied Richard, stooping to pick up the piece of paper. Milk? called Reg. Uh, please. One lump or two. Uh, one, please. Richard slipped the paper back into the book, noticing as he did so that it had a hurriedly scribbled note on it. The note said, oddly enough, 
Regard the simple silver salt cellar. Regard the simple hat. Sugar? Uh, uh, what? said Richard, startled. He put the book hurriedly back on the pile. <laughs> Just a tiny joke of mine, said Reg cheerily, to see if people are listening. He emerged beaming from the kitchen, carrying a small tray with two cups on it, which he hurled suddenly to the floor. The tea splashed over the carpet. One of the cups shattered, and the other bounced under the table. Reg leaned against the doorframe, white-faced and staring. A frozen instant of time slid silently by, while Richard was too startled to react. Then he leapt awkwardly forward to help, but the old man was already apologising and offering to make him another cup. Richard helped him to the sofa. Are you all right? asked Richard helplessly. Sh shall I get a doctor? Reg waved him down. It's all right, he insisted. I'm, I'm perfectly well. I thought I heard well, well a noise that startled me, but it was nothing. Just overcome with tea fumes, I expect. Let me just catch my breath. I think a little uh, a port will revive me excellently. Um, so sorry, I didn't mean to startle you. He waved in the general direction of the port decanter. Richard hurriedly poured a small glass and gave it to him. What, what kind of noise? he asked, wondering what on earth could shock him so much. At that moment came the sound of movement upstairs, and an extraordinary kind of heavy breathing noise. That, whispered Reg. The glass of port lay shattered at his feet. Upstairs someone seemed to be stamping. Did you hear it? Well, yes. This seemed to relieve the old man. Richard looked nervously up at the ceiling. Is there someone up there? he asked, feeling this is a lame question, but one that had to be asked. No, said Reg in a low voice that shocked Richard with the fear it carried. No one. No one that should be there. Then— Reg was struggling shakily to his feet, but there was suddenly a fierce determination about him. I must go up there, he said quietly. I must. Please wait for me here. Look, what is this? demanded Richard standing between Reg and the doorway. What is it, a burglar? Look, I'll go. I'm, I'm sure it's nothing. It's just the wind or something. Richard didn't know why he was saying this. It clearly wasn't the wind, or even anything like the wind. Because though the wind might conceivably make heavy breathing noises, it rarely stamped its feet in that way. No, the old man said, politely but firmly moving him aside. It is for me to do. Richard followed him helplessly through the door into the small hallway, beyond which lay the tiny kitchen. A dark wooden staircase led up from here. The steps seemed damaged and scuffed. Reg turned on a light. It was a dim one that hung naked at the bottom of the stairwell, and he looked up at it with grim apprehension. Wait here, he said, and walked up two steps. He then turned and faced Richard with a look of the most profound seriousness on his face. I am sorry, he said, that you have become involved in what is the more difficult side of my life. But you are involved now, regrettable though that may be, and there is something I must ask you. I do not know what awaits me up there, do not know exactly. I do not know if it's something which I have foolishly brought upon myself with my, my hobbies, or if it is something to which I have fallen an innocent victim. If it is the former, then I have only myself to blame, for I am like a doctor who cannot give up smoking, or perhaps worse still, like an ecologist who cannot give up his car. If the latter, then I hope it may not happen to you. What I must ask you is this. When I come back down these stairs, always supposing, of course, that I do, then if my behaviour strikes you as being in any way odd, if I appear not to be myself, then you must leap on me and wrestle me to the ground. Do you understand? You must prevent me from doing anything I may try to do. But how will I know? asked an incredulous Richard. Sorry, I don't mean it to sound like that, but I don't know what. You will know, said Reg. Now please wait for me in the main room and close the door. Shaking his head in bewilderment, Richard stepped back and did as he was asked. From inside the large, untidy room, he listened to the sound of the professor's tread, mounting the stairs, one at a time. He mounted them with a heavy deliberation, like the ticking of a great slow clock. Richard heard him reach the top landing. There he paused in silence. Seconds went by, five, maybe ten, maybe twenty. Then came again the heavy movement and breath that had first so harrowed the professor. Richard moved quickly to the door, but did not open it. The chill of the room oppressed and disturbed him. He shook his head to try and shake off the feeling, and then held his breath as the footsteps started once again slowly to traverse the two yards of landing, and to pause there again. After only a few seconds, this time Richard heard the long, slow squeak of a door being opened inch by inch inch by cautious inch, 
until it must surely now at last be standing wide agape. Nothing further seemed to happen for a long, long time. Then at last the door closed once again, slowly. The footsteps crossed the landing and paused again. Richard backed a few slight steps from the door, staring fixedly at it. Once more the footsteps started to descend the stairs, slowly, deliberately, and quietly, until at last they reached the bottom. Then, after a few seconds more, the door handle began to rotate. The door opened, and Reg walked calmly in. It's all right. It's just a horse in the bathroom, he said quietly. Richard leapt on him and wrestled him to the ground. No, gasped Reg. No, get off me. Let me go. I'm perfectly all right, damn it. It's just a horse, a perfectly ordinary horse. He shook Richard off with no great difficulty and sat up, puffing and blowing and pushing his hands through his limited hair. Richard stood over him warily, but with great and mounting embarrassment, he edged back and let Reg stand up and sit on a chair. Just a horse, said Reg, but a, a thank you for taking me at my word. He brushed himself down. A horse, repeated Richard. Ah, yes, said Reg. Richard went out and looked up the stairs, and then came back in. A horse, he said again. Yes, it is, said the professor. Wait, he motioned to Richard, who was about to go out again and investigate. Let it be. It won't be long. Richard stared in disbelief. You say there's a horse in your bathroom and all you can do is stand there naming Beatles songs? The professor looked blankly at him. Listen, he said, I'm sorry if I alarmed you earlier. It was just a slight turn. These things happen, my dear fellow. Don't upset yourself about it. Dear me, I've known odder things in my time, many of them far odder. She's only a horse, for heaven's sake. I'll go and let her out later. Please don't concern yourself. Let us revive our spirits with some port. But how did it get in there? Well, the bathroom window's open. I expect you came in through that. Richard looked at him, not for the first and certainly not for the last time, through eyes that were narrowed with suspicion. You're doing it deliberately, aren't you? He said. Doing what, my dear fellow? I don't believe there's a horse in your bathroom, said Richard suddenly. I don't know what is there. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what any of this evening means, but I don't believe there's a horse in your bathroom. And brushing aside Reg's further protestations, he went up to look. The bathroom was not large. The walls were panelled in old oak linen fold, which, given the age and nature of the building, was quite probably priceless, but otherwise the fittings were stark and institutional. There was old, scuffed, black-and-white checked linoleum on the floor, a small, basic bath, well-cleaned, but with very elderly stains and chips in the enamel, and also a small, basic basin with a toothbrush and toothpaste and a Durelex beaker standing next to the taps. Screwed into the probably priceless panelling above the basin was a tin, mirror-fronted bathroom cabinet. It looked as if it had been repainted many times, and the mirror was stained round the edges with condensation. The lavatory had an old-fashioned cast-iron chain-pull system. There was an old, cream-painted wooden cupboard standing in the corner, with an old brown bentwood chair next to it, on which lay some neatly folded but threadbare small towels. There was also a large horse in the room, taking up most of it. Richard stared at it, and it stared at Richard in an appraising kind of way. Richard swayed slightly. The horse stood quite still. After a while it looked at the cupboard and said, It seemed, if not content, then at least perfectly resigned to being where it was until it was put somewhere else. It also seemed... What was it? It was bathed in the glow of the moonlight that streamed in through the window. The window was open but small, and was, besides, on the second floor, so the notion that the horse had entered by that route was entirely fanciful. One, two, one, two, three, ah! Hot pants! Hey, hot pants! Ah, uh, look! Hot pants! Smoking that hot pants! That's where it's at! Check your pants up on uh, It looks much better time My feet keep going Girl, blowing my mind Thinking of losing that funky feeling Don't, uh, cause you got to use What you got to get just what you want uh, Hey, uh, hot pants Hey, hot pants Smoking the Hot pants make you shoot yourself. 
good thought You won't like You got the only love you left Hey, so brother If you think you're losing that feeling Then don't Cause a woman got to use what she got You don't get what you want Hey Much better than time. Uh. 
Love 